And so now they've made their way down. And now Joseph is positioning these brothers, not just to feel bad, not just to be surprised, not just to have an I told you so on his part, but he is positioning them for true and real repentance. And it's a beautiful story of insisting on nothing less than actual biblical repentance that we'll see as we read it through. And there'll be two big things that happen here. There's going to be a grand reveal, and it'll be of Joseph revealing himself, but there's going to be something even grander, a grander repentance. That's what we'll look at as we read through. Verse 1 of chapter 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks, this is the ten brothers, as well as Benjamin, the youngest brother. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. And put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. Along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. The youngest one is Benjamin. The youngest one, by the way, happens to now be the favorite son of Jacob. He is the one that actually Jacob refers to as, as being the, the, the one great son that he has. Valued above the other ten. The, Jacob's favoritism, the dad, Jacob, also known as Israel, his favoritism is sadly still flaring. The other ten brothers are still probably feeling the same things against Benjamin that they had earlier felt against Joseph. So all of that resentment, all of that terrible family dysfunction and dynamic is still raging. But now they're going to be able to have the opportunity for repentance to treat Benjamin differently than they had treated Joseph. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. Some people like come up to me and say, why do you say donkey instead of donkey? And we have this debate all the time. <laughs> well, do you say monkey or monkey? So donkey it is. <laughs> they had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. Now, my, my first point is a grand reveal. Now, Joseph has not yet revealed himself. As a matter of fact, at this point, he is concealing himself. And many have speculated, whoa, 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 what's going on with righteous Joseph here? Is he a man practicing divination? I don't think so. Let me tell you why I don't think so. Is that when he talks to the steward about giving the cup to Benjamin, he would, if he had actually used that cup for divination, I think he would have referred to it as the divining cup. You know, he would have said to the steward, hey, put the divining cup. In Benjamin's sack. But it's not how he talks about it to his steward. He talks about it as, you know, that silver cup, the, the, the silver cup, you know, the, the one that I use. Put that in, in my youngest son's sack. And then later on, though, he instructs the steward to say to them, by the way, this is a cup used for divination. Why would he have to say that to the steward if the steward already thought, though, of course, this is the cup used for divination? 
but to perpetrate and to perpetuate the ruse, the concealment. And for the brothers to still not know who he is, he needs to play the role of full-on Egyptian governor here. They can't know that he's a Hebrew. And they can't know, of course, that he's their brother because then the jig will be up. And then their repentance will be for other reasons. And so he needs to maintain this facade of one who is truly a governor, one who would do all the things that a governor would do, and one who is all-knowing, who might even have a cup of divination. Why? Because that also helps keep the brothers on a track where they'll actually deal with them honestly. And, and if he can deal, get them to deal honestly, he has a chance to be able to expose them and to do the character purge of repentance that he so desires to see in his brothers. All right. When he caught up with them, verse 6, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants. So these are the brothers saying, far be it from us. They always use the word your servants, so it gets a little confusing. But every time they're saying your servants, hey, far be it from us to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. And so the brothers set out the conditions and the consequences of this little agreement that, God forbid, there's no way we would have stolen a silver cup or even the governor's divining cup. That's, that's not the way we roll. As a matter of fact, we're so, so sure it's not the way we roll that if it's in any of our possessions, kill the person who's got it and the rest of us will become your slaves. Now the steward isn't looking to have that happen and I think he probably had some instructions from Joseph and he softens the consequence. And so look at what he says. Very well then, he said, verse 10, let it be as you say. But look at how it's softened. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. He softens it. Why? To set up the very same conditions by which these 10 brothers sinned before. Where they went free, but the brother became a slave. And see the way that he's kind of brought it into just the perfect conditions for them to be able to show their repentance, not just by their words or their tears, but by their deeds. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, to build the tension, of course. And, and by the way, and also to build the awe among the brothers that these people somehow know who's the oldest and who's the youngest. Remember earlier they were seated by Joseph in order from young, oldest to youngest. And, and they were amazed. And so, How do they know? They must know everything about us. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. That's a sign of mourning. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. And they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Again, 
I, in my opinion, he is putting himself in a position where he can help them repent the best. If, if they don't believe that he's not their brother, then they will repent for the wrong reasons. So he is continuing to wear the mask of governor of Egypt. So th that's my opinion on that. I think for a lot of people too. What can we say to my Lord? Verse 16, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Wow. Judah is the one who's actually saying, we are guilty. And they know that they're not guilty for this particular offense, but they know that they are a guilty bunch. And it still hangs over them. And that maybe they're, they're not guilty for this incident, but for sure they are guilty as a lot for what they did to Joseph. And here they are confessing that freely, even before Joseph. I'm sure Joseph must be really at a point of so much wanting to reveal himself at this point in time. But by the way, you know, sometimes we get, in a sense, busted for things that may not be the offense that was the big one in our life. Uh, and rather than argue the finer points of the, the, the current exposure as well, I don't think I really did it to that degree, when actually I have a track record of doing that a hundred times over in my life. And, you know, sadly, one of those times happened not too long ago in my life. I would, um, I, I, you know, I, I speed sometimes, a lot of times. <laughs> and I'm smiling like, oh, it's like a great thing. But, 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 I, but I do. And, um, but, you know, the, the one area where I try not to speed, and I think I usually do a pretty good job, is in school zones, right? This is my self-righteousness about the school zone where, I, you know, on the highway, I have no righteousness, right? But, but nonetheless... So I'm, I'm coming into a school zone a couple of years back and, you know, I, I see the line, like where the school zone starts, right in front of Cox High School, right by our house, drive it every day. You know, and I, and I, I, I slow down from like 38, as a, you know, down to you know, 25 and go, but the, the police officer is kind of, you know, gunning me and he, he guns me as I'm slowing down going into that section and, and he claims later that I was, you know, speeding at the time. And, and I remember being so tempted to say, but no, I wasn't. Like, I passed that line going 25. I did. And, and I'm all ready with my protest. But, but I realized, you know what? There are so many times I should have been thrown in jail for the way I drive. <laughs> and I'm going to argue this right now. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, guilty, guilty as charged. If not... If not for this, let it be for the great body of work of my life <laughs> that, that this is representative of. And, and, and again, you know, maybe somebody gets you just off in the way that you had an interaction with somebody else. And you're like, ah, oh, but you know what? You're, you're judging me. And who, you know, you can't judge me. Well, you can apparently if you listen to the passage that Scott just read a couple of minutes ago. Are we not to judge those inside the church? 1 Corinthians 5. 12, I think. Uh, but, but, but you're judging me. You know, that's the protestation that comes out of our mouth. But yet, that's the way that we have treated so many people in our lives. And somebody seems to see an indication of what they've noticed a hundred times over to be able to point it out to us. And we want to argue the fine points of this rather than allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to conviction for the great body of work of our personal interactions that have been so characteristic of us. We will do well 
to really embrace someone who decides to actually take the time to disrupt our lives, to be able to point out something like this, then nobody, who, who really loves to do that? I've said this many times before. I'm from New Jersey. If anybody should like to do that, it's me. Like, that's how we grew up. That's what we lived for. But even I don't actually enjoy that. It, it really takes a ton of self-denial to stop and intercede and disrupt and, and really try to talk this through in a, in a way. It's all discomforting. There's nothing wonderful about it. And, and so if somebody is, I think, loving you enough to, to come into your life and to point out something, realize, oh, praise God, the Holy Spirit is doing a character purge on me right now. And obviously God has plans and dreams for me that I'm about to become even more for his sake and, and even maybe a little bit more like Christ through this interaction. So nonetheless, the brothers here have come to a place where they realize, all right, maybe not for this, but we are guilty men. And God has obviously disrupted our lives because it's never really been dealt with. We are now my Lord's slaves. I'm in the middle of verse 16. We are we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Right? Not just Benjamin, all of us. You know what? We're with you. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. <laughs> See the conditions that have been just set up? Yep. Far from the inquiring eyes of their father, they can just work this out right now. They can do what they did in chapter 37. They can do what they did in Dothan. They can just kind of leave Joseph in the pit and scurry on back and say, ah, humana, humana, ah, this is what happened to Joseph. And get their release, get their freedom, get their release from the annoyance of their brother and the favoritism of the father and be able to go back and live their lives with greater standing and even greater inheritance. Um, and guess what? They're facing the exact same choice again. They get to leave Benjamin, come up with some fine sounding excuse for their father and, and go on back and be able to live their lives with greater inheritance and greater peace and no longer be vexed by the favoritism of a son and no longer be the sons that are not, not so loved by their father. They have the exact same temptation that's put before them. And Joseph has managed it rather well for them. By the way, God also arranges our life so that we have beautiful opportunities to really express true repentance. And, and sometimes I even wonder why, like Joseph, does God not just kind of blah, reveal himself? Well, I think if the roof blew off of this thing and the sky be rolled back as a scroll and the glory that is God suddenly appeared before us, well, who wouldn't be, I repent, I forsake it all. I'm sorry, you know, suddenly everything would come to mind. I get it, I repent, I repent. But, but you know what? God doesn't want to, in a sense, coerce our repentance. He wants it to be born out of our own volition, out of our own will, out of our own decision. God's not in the business of just flipping a switch inside of you to give you no other option but to repent. But he honors that you were made in his image. You were made with free will. And he wants you to exercise that beautiful image of God, free will, to choose God, to choose that path. And so we don't have the full 
revelation of God. We will someday, but in the meantime, God reveals himself just enough so that we can turn to him, but not so much that we're coerced into doing so. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, let me speak a word to my Lord. By the way, Judah is the one who actually masterminded the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Judah's the one. So how important is that as we, we hear this? Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servants, do you have a father or a brother? He asked that back in 41, 42. And we answered, we have an aged father and there's a young son born to him in old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. By the way, Joseph knows all this because he's already said all of this to him. Joseph knows that Jacob is still alive. Joseph has wept over these ideas already. Joseph has wept at the sight of his brothers. And now it says in verse 21, then you said to your servants during this conversation a couple chapters ago, bring Benjamin down to see me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. In other words, you're not getting any more food and you're going to die. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. In other words, when we went back to Jacob, we told him what you, Joseph, said. Then our father said, go back and buy some more food. But we said, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. By the way, this is the first time that Joseph is realizing the uh, lie that was said by these honest men about him. And the lie to Jacob was, you know, animals have torn him to pieces. Look, examine his robe. Uh, tell us if it's not the case. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he's going to die. Your servant will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. So Judah has made a very emotional appeal right now. And the appeal is, don't do this. If you do this, Jacob, who happens to be your father, even though I don't know it, but if you do this, Joseph, then, then his head will go to the grave and the worst of all grief. Is that what you really want? But that's not enough to get Joseph to say, okay, 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 let me tell you who I really am. I notice that Joseph is still maintaining his facade as the great governor of Egypt. Why? Because they're so close. They're like on the threshold of repentance right now. Right? There's, there's all kinds of regret and confession. All good protestation on their part. All of that's going on. It's like they're so close to repenting. And Joseph just needs to get them to that place where real deliverance happens. Verse 38, uh, 33. Now then, 
Uh, Judah's continuing in his speech. Now then, please listen to this. Let your servant, in other words, me, let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Ding, 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 ding. Repentance. Praise God. We'll look at that in a minute. Let me keep the story going. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. The grand reveal. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. There have been multiple episodes of weeping, none like this. The greatest weeping was not in the realization that these are my brothers. The greatest weeping was not in the realization of I have a younger brother from my mother, Benjamin. The greatest weeping was that my father is still alive. The greatest weeping is that now Benjamin is here and I'm embracing him. Still, all those, those were all times of weeping in, in our narrative. But the greatest weeping, my brothers have come to repentance. Amen. They're no longer gripped and enslaved by sin. My brothers have come to repentance. A weeping so loud that it is unmistakable and word spreads throughout all of the palace courts. That Joseph is weeping over something greater than anything that we've ever heard before. And what is it? Repentance. And then here comes the grand reveal. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Imagine them hearing that. I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Again, they would have repented for the wrong reasons. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing or weeping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. And next week, we'll study out the sovereignty of God. Today, though, we're going to look in a minute at the grander repentance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You'll live in the region of Goshen. You'll be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds. Oh, yeah. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household all belong to you. You'll become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that this is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you've seen. Bring my father down quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers. He wept over all of them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. 
When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals, return to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You're also directed to tell them, do this. Take some of the carts from Egypt for your children, for your wives. Get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because all the best in Egypt is going to be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh's commanded. He also gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them, they gave new clothing. But to Benjamin, 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, uh, and also, don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> Even though you're repentant, you still have some, you know, old patterns. So they went up to Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. Then they told him, Joseph's still alive. In fact, he's the ruler over all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. I mean, he was a grieving father. What? My son's alive. And he's the ruler of Wow. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, Israel is Jacob, Jacob is Israel, just two same names. I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. It's almost as if all of Genesis comes to this point in time. All of Genesis, where the blessing was entrusted to Abraham, and then entrusted to Isaac, and then entrusted to Jacob, and then that dysfunctional family of Jacob and the 12 sons, they hold the blessing. The blessing by which all nations will be blessed. The blessing by which all people will know the love of God. This precious possession residing in this family is in a very broken container. And God here wants to fix it so that the blessing will one day make it to you. And it did. And it will continue to make its way through you. But, but as the blessing has come to this broken family, God determines that he will fix it. And fix it he does by bringing about a grander repentance. And as we consider the repentance that is so clearly laid out, as seen through the words of Judah, as seen through the ten brothers that are here, it's an important thing to consider. Why? Because our generation speaks so little of repentance. In or out of church, repentance is a neglected, astounding, beautiful, phenomenal, supernatural gift from God that for whatever reason, even Christianity all about decides to just simply shrug off. I'd rather just have someone tell me good things about myself and say, you are blessed and you are forgiven, rather than to actually be delivered out of the darkness. And sadly, so many sit in darkness. So many still have the shackles, the slavery of sin, continuing to rule their life, even though they claim the forgiveness and they claim the blessings and they claim the, the great anointing of the Lord and yet the shackles remain. Why? Because Christianity in general has perpetrated an awful ruse 
through our land and in this generation. They no longer offer the double cure. Christianity is no longer offering the double cure, which is not just the forgiveness of sins, but a triumph over sin. Both of that is the power of the gospel. And obviously it's easier just to say, okay, you're okay now. Because how do you know, right? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you actually prove it? And, and that's why, you know, everybody walks around just saying, well, only God can judge me. Doesn't matter what my life is like. Only God can judge me. Why? Because they have bought into not a double cure, but a single cure. But half of that cure then leaves them living like the rest of the world. And Ron Sider in a book published a few years ago lamented on this idea that the world looks no different from the church. That if you track racism among different groups, here's the sadness of it. If you were asking, and I've shared this data before, but if you ask someone that someone, and these are asking white folks, by the way, if someone of color were to move next to you, what group would most likely do something to try to block it? Will the group least likely to do anything about it? Atheists. Second, least likely, Jews. Third, least likely, Catholics. Most likely to do something about it? Evangelical Christians. That's a scathing indictment. That's not repentance. That's a group of people who have been sold a bill of goods that you're okay. I affirm you. Here's your participation trophy. Good job. Well, you know what? That doesn't cut it. God keeps score. And even though your mediocre soccer season ended in defeat after defeat, that participation trophy doesn't change what really happened on the field. And the same thing, some sort of pronouncement at an at a altar call that, yes, God loves you now, doesn't change the fact that you have not been delivered out of sin. And repentance is such a gift from God. It is the very return to God. We are not back with God if we've not repented. As a matter of fact, Paul says, no one can name the name of the Lord. No one can call on the name of the Lord if he has not turned from his wickedness. 2 Timothy 2.19. By the way, in that same study by Ron Sider in the book, uh, a, the, the Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, uh, the, the other horrible indictment that, that was there is that the uh, level of premarital sexual relations in the world versus the church has become indistinguishable from a statistical standpoint. Frightening, right? And one of those studies was based on a uh, Southern Baptist uh, program called True Love Waits, where you put on a, a kind of a ring saying that you're pledged to purity until you're married. And Columbia and Yale did a longitudinal study of 12,000 of those folks that actually put on the ring and made that pledge. And what they found was, on that long, a longitudinal study means that they track them from the day they put on the ring to the day that they're married. And at the end of that study of a very big sample group, 12,000 people, they tried to find out how, what percentage of them remained pure up until their wedding day. And by the way, so encouraging, of the weddings that I, I've performed in the last two, three years, 
I would say that almost every single wedding that I've performed, when I've said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may now kiss the bride, that was the very first kiss of that husband and wife. Debbie and I dated for 20 months. And when we were married and got the pronouncement, you may now kiss the bride, that was the first time we ever kissed each other. Greatest kiss of my life, by the way. <laughs> Why? Because true love waits. But by the way, in that longitudinal study, guess what percentage of the people had sex before they were married? 25? No. Not 80. 88%! Right? That's why the book is called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. 88%. All claiming Christianity. What in the world? Let's take a look at what repentance is and what repentance is not. Fear is not repentance. Even though in, in Genesis 42, when they realized, ah, the silver has been brought back. It's in our sacks. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other and said, what is this that God has done to us? They have a fear of the Lord. They have a fear of the consequences of what's going on in their life. But fear does not equal repentance. The jig may be up in your life. You may have gotten exposed. Your persona at school has suddenly now bumped into your persona at church. And there's no way out of it. You're like, ah! And you may have a great bit of fear, but that fear, although it is meant to sharpen the mind and focus you into the direction of repentance, is not repentance itself. Joseph would have revealed himself back in chapter 42 when they were gripped with fear and their hearts sank and they turned to each other and said, what is God doing among us? But he realized that is not yet true Repentance. Fear is just simply an opportunity for you to think clearly and do damage control. And that is a terrible idea, is to try to control the damage of what has just gone down. And, and maybe that the damage is done through a lie. Maybe the damage is done through a theft. Maybe the damage is done through an unfaithfulness, in a, in a marriage even. And, and you go, oh, let me, let me cover it up. I, I don't want to, you know, I'll spare her feelings in the situation. Or let me, let me kind of erase my internet cache history here. Because you know, then, you know, that way if my parents look, they, they won't be so uptight about it. And I'm sparing their feelings. All that is just damage control. And it's not repentance. By the way, every press conference, when a political leader or a sports hero has to come up to a podium like this and apologize... Every single one that I've seen anyway, damage control. Fear has gripped them that they have been exposed, and I better say something. And so I say, well, if I have offended anyone with my comments, what do you mean if? Of course you did. Then I apologize. Weak sauce. That is not repentance. You know what else is not repentance? Protesting your innocence is not repentance. We are honest men. They say that about themselves, the ten brothers do, no less than five times in this narrative. We are honest men. Well, just saying you're an honest man doesn't mean that you have rearranged the lies of your life to make them right and to live as men of integrity. And, you know, I think there's some wisdom when 
Jesus tells the story in Luke of, hey, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I? If he repents, forgive him, is, is what Jesus says. You know, we've got a lot of situations, brother and sister, mother, son, uh, husband, wife, where there has been some pretty terrible sin in one another's lives. And to just simply protest and say, but I'm a changed man. But I love you, baby. That's behind me now. I'm a new man. I'm going to do right. Again, Joseph doesn't reveal himself when they say we are honest men. And don't be surprised that your wife doesn't open up her arms of intimacy to you just because you say, I'm a reformed man. It's, it's not enough to make the claim. Again, as Paul says, no one should name the name of the Lord unless they have actually turned from their wickedness. Unless we have actually rearranged our very lives, and we'll, we'll talk about those in just a moment. Again, don't have an attitude with someone that they're waiting to see the fruit of your repentance and not just the claim of your repentance. As a matter of fact, that, that claim of repentance is brought to none other than John the Baptist, who is the preacher of repentance. And as people were coming up to him wanting to get baptized, he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. Welcome. Uh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Again, they make the protestation, they make the claim. We're a people of God. We're, we're godly people. He's like, no, 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 no. Show me the fruit. Show me the money, right? God can raise up children for Abraham out of these stones. The axe is at the root of the tree. And every tree that doesn't actually produce the good fruit of repentance, is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, it doesn't matter that you claim repentance. What matters is, are you bearing the fruit of repentance? Does your life actually now have the evidence of a change of direction? This is an interesting one. Confession doesn't equal repentance. You know, in, in, a, in a parallel passage to that, by the way, in Matthew 3, we have also John the Baptist preaching repentance there. And it's one of the classic repentance passages that informs us on the idea of repentance. And interestingly, as we, as we pick up that narrative, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And now listen to this. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. So they came out to John confessing their sins. That's how they arrived at John. You know how John greets them? Well, the same words that I just read. This is the next, next verse. This is uh, Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Sometimes it feels so much better to confess. Psalm 36 says that when we 
hold in the darkness and live in that darkness, it's as if God's hand is pressing upon us. Literally, the word is to depress. I mean, we feel the depression when we conceal the mess that is our lives. And to finally come clean is such a relief of the burden. But that sense of relief is not repentance. It's just you unburdening yourself. Unburdening yourself, maybe on the appropriate person, but still, it is not you having rearranged all of your affections and allegiances and ambitions and agenda all in alignment with now living with Jesus as Lord and not yourself at all. And once that is the clarity of the way that you make sense of everything in your life, only then, I think, do we recognize, ah, they've gone from damage control. They've gone from self-pity. They've gone from fear. They've gone from confessing to actually repentance. But you know what is repentance? Returning. Returning to God. Repentance isn't something that we do to return to God, as if it's some sort of a prerequisite. Repentance is our return to God. As we repent, we are coming back to the Lord. We are coming home. We are coming out of the pig slot and returning back to, to, to our Father Himself. We are saying with our feet that I am now living in alignment with Jesus and not with my sinful nature. My life and all that went with it is now dead and I now realign myself. And one other thing, by the way, before I finish off with this idea that is not repentance, is regret is not repentance. Regret fills chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45. But regret is not repentance. And Joseph does not reveal himself until he sees that regret turn into a real desire for a rearranged life where they're willing to, hey, you know what? Put me in slavery rather than Benjamin. When, they, when he sees the fruit of that repentance, then he realizes that there is real repentance. A lot of people regret things. My goodness, who, who doesn't notice that Judas regrets deeply what he did and throws the silver coins back? They're like, hey, what's done is done. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge, sought repentance with tears, Hebrews 12 tells us, but could not find true repentance, even though he wept bitterly. Why? Because he wasn't willing to bear the fruit of repentance, to show his repentance by his deeds. Cain's face fell terribly and says, Ah, oh, my punishment is too great for me to bear, but yet never repented. Again, you may regret what you've done horribly. It may be burdening your very soul. You may have confessed it. You may be in fear of the Lord as a result of it. But even still, none of that is repentance unless you have really returned to the Lord. Unless you have gone from I am Lord to Jesus is Lord. Our generation offers you an assortment of compromises of Christianity with countless hybrids by which you can be both Lord to yourself and still claim Jesus as your Lord. 
You've got to reject them all. Half measures avail nothing. Jesus alone is Lord. When you faithfully confess Jesus is Lord, everything, everything, your heart, your mindset, your allegiance, affections, ambitions, appetites, agenda, your peers, everything changes. It really does. And then you begin to realize God's great plans for you. But repentance remains a daunting challenge nonetheless because it challenges everything in your flesh that is screaming for self-preservation. It's why it is such a neglected doctrine of the Bible is because it rails against every bit of self-preservation that you have within you. But only when you know that beautiful release and the depth of that trust only then will you know faith in Jesus. When it all can be put on the line, when it all can be made transparent, when you are delivered out of the dominion of darkness into the brilliant dominion of the Son whom He loves, only then will you know the glory that is true deliverance. And only then will you know the fullness of God's plan for your life. Let me encourage you that if right now you sit on the threshold of repentance, if you're staring at that threshold, if fear has brought you there, if confession has made you feel as if you're just about there, if damage control has gotten you there but hasn't brought you all the way home, if regret is still way heavily upon you, and yet you've not yet dealt with the main issue that God wants you to deal with, if you've not yet felt the blessings of God come showering upon you as the ten brothers gain right afterwards. If you've not yet known the exhilaration of reckless, pure abandonment into the faith, into the trust of the arms of the Lord. If you've not known the love of Christ that blows away and obliterates all the idolatry of relationships and money and security and job that is that has gripped you if you've not yet known all of that i beg you don't just keep staring at that threshold take the step over that threshold when you do everything changes the trajectory of your life is astounding the exhilaration the enthusiasms the alignment with the very will of God, taking Jesus' yoke upon you, his burden, his light, and it is a terrific walk. Let me encourage you. The Holy Spirit, I know, has been working on all of us. Don't just kind of stumble over these convictions only to brush yourself off and head down the broad path. The Holy Spirit has disrupted us through this to see the beauty of the narrow path. It is a rare thing, but you're a rare thing. You're one that is ready to respond to the love of God. Do nothing less. Amen.